Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On today's show, we're heading onto the dance floor. Those places that form integral parts of our culture, create community, help us escape or come home to ourselves. Dance floors are unique social spaces. They appear in clubs, at weddings and, of course, birthday parties, but also in kitchens, playgrounds and even protests. As we grow, so too does our dancing. Even if we never quite master certain moves, the places and people change as we evolve from the school disco to the office party. Today we'll be exploring the need to carve out spaces to dance, examining their purpose and wondering what dancing can tell us about ourselves. These are all questions that Emma Warren's new book, Dance Your Way Home, A Journey Through the Dance Floor, set out to answer. Plus, we'll be heading across the Atlantic to hear from DJ Justin Carter on his experience of running DIY club nights and eventually setting up a permanent and perpetually popular space in New York City. Along the way, we'll be making various stops as Monocle staffers reflect on the dance floors that have made an impact on them and knowing them on which they also have made an impact. So bring your dancing shoes. Monocle on Culture is ready to cut some shapes. Before we start, what of the moment before you take that first step onto a dance floor? Who is brave enough to go first? And what if no one follows? Well, here's Monocle's Amy van der Berg on that feeling of hesitation. I know when I get into it, I can cut a rug on any dance floor. It's not arrogance, being lanky and incurably self-conscious. It's taken a decade to learn how to appear at least partly cool. Where once it was terrifying, now I've come to love that moment when the first few notes of a verified banger hits a party. It's a beautiful moment of human behavior, like a chemical reaction the crowd parts and a space forms, ringed with the nervous buzz of heady desire to be that one, the one to move into the middle and pull off something wonderfully groovy. And in this space, the tension builds. Who's going first? What kind of person am I? Is this the moment? We all want to present ourselves to the world and to be seen as confident, powerful, and sexy. This is my theory. If I've learned anything throughout my many successes and train wrecks confronting spontaneous dance circles, it's this. That in that nanosecond of truth, the only thing that matters is knowing that flair and confidence aren't inherent personality traits. They are decisions. Amy Vanderberg there. Thank you, Amy. Now, Emma Warren has been documenting grassroots music culture for decades. Part cultural history and part memoir, her new book, Dance Your Way Home, A Journey Through the Dance Law, documents the importance of dance laws in her own life and for all of us as a society. Wherever they may be, dancing can tell us crucial things about ourselves individually and collectively. I was delighted to be joined in the studio by Emma and I began by asking her how the book's title Dance Your Way Home and that idea of finding your way home through dancing is borne out in the book. Thank you so much for having me and what a lovely way to start because I do feel and imagine and explore the dance floor as a kind of safe harbour. So there is a connection between home and the dance floor as I see it 
I consider it to be a place where you can find a version of yourself that you believe in, where you can find some of the relationships that perhaps replicate what families can bring. I've experienced that and I've spoken to lots of other people who have. And I think often people conflate dance floor with like rave and they go straight to drugs or they go straight (laughs) to pulling. And um, I just think it offers so much more than that. So I'm trying to kind of um, expand what we think the dance floor is and that it's the nightclub, but it's also the village green or the crossroads Mm. or the kitchen. And so the the Dance Your Way Home part of it, to kind of actually try and answer what you asked me. uh, (laughs) I think think we almost got there, though. Freestyling. (laughs) Um, But that's what it's all about, isn't it? Is that I actually was playing around with words to do with house because I have this kind of long and abiding relationship with house music. Mm -hmm. And also I feel the dance floor as a place of safety, of sanctuary. And that's certainly been true, particularly for communities that experience maximum marginalisation, communities of colour, people that are racialized, people who experience homophobia, all the isms. So I was playing with words to do with house and home. And then I just had this feeling of like, actually, what I've always been able to do on the dance floor, wherever I found it, is to come back to home. And, and the body is the original home, isn't it? And so I could come back to something within myself, which would allow me to feel more grounded and navigate whatever whatever the next day or the next hour or the next minute was going to have within it. Nice. And there is something about that, perhaps in what you're saying as well, that kind of comfort in crowds, even if you're a a bit of a shy person. You talk a bit in the book about being, you know, every 16-year-old is most most of them, they've got their head screwed on, right, are probably fairly backwards and coming forwards. You kind of, you tend to think the comfort in crowds comes out of of this a lot. Um, And you, as a 16-year-old, were going to heaven, in London, a legendary um, nightclub. Can you tell us a little bit about being in that queue, the, the sights and sounds and smells of being a young woman, very young woman, coming up on the train from Orpington and going to that place? What, can you paint to our listeners a little picture of the excitement, the nervy excitement, I expect, yeah. of nights like that for you? Absolutely. And I love the fact that you talked about togetherness and the kind of like the comfort of crowds because I think we're a really communal species and I think we crave it and find it even if it's not easily available. And it wasn't massively easy available to 16-year-old me, although it was available enough for me to be able to find the other people that wanted to get there as well and to like go in a little bundle on the train with my friends from Orpington College and get ourselves in the queue on a Thursday night outside the opening night of a club called Rage at Heaven underneath the arches at Charing Cross. And Rage went on to have a very legendary status because it became the place where jungle and drum and bass kind of began. When I went, this was a couple of years before, it was the beginning, it was another acid house night. So it was very, very exciting. It was half term. This is the only reason I could actually get myself up there. There's all this kind of like, I love this kind of amazing like squareness about the story that I'm telling that, you know, I'm not, it's not cool. But I enjoyed being in the queue. The queue was very exciting. You could hear the music coming from the outside because in the era before sound limiters and decibel monitors, you felt the noise before you heard it. And so the emergency doors would be rattling. It was very, very exciting. And inside, this is a large club, a famed club, a club built on queer culture because it was London's first, as they would have said then, gay club. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people paid the price for going. People in the queues, there was a, a case earlier in 1988 where some people just queuing up to get in the club were attacked by some football fans and, you know, brutally injured and all went to court. And, you know, so this is like a place where people had to really make the effort to go. And I I feel that shows in the roots of it. The foundation was built by communities that were experiencing hardship and then, um, you know, 
we kind of like went up on the train from Orpington yeah. and, and really made the most of it. So, yeah. And you mentioned there, you've mentioned sort of Jungle and Acid House and different sorts of music coming out of these scenes, out of these particular nights mm. at particular venues that you've seen. You, you talk about it a bit, a bit in the book, but you've seen great kind of genres of music kind of come and go and evolve. And you've seen sort of in kind of vinyl terms, the, f- the first test pressings of certain types of music <laughs> live in front of you, played by a DJ in front of an amazing crowd. How does that feel, kind of documenting that through the book and then trying to remember some of those nights, I'm sure? You seem to have kept a pretty good diary. It's all in the body. I didn't didn't have access to any of my teenage diaries. Okay. Okay. I just had to remember it by moving to it. Right, so you put on a certain record and you've got like a, it's a Proustian Madeleine for you. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, with just like really big bass lines. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But say again what you said because it triggered a thought in me. Oh, I know, you were talking about this. um, Listening to the evolution of music. Thank you, thank you. The thing that I want to say about that is this makes me feel so unbelievably encouraged about what will happen next and then what will happen after that next and then what will happen after that next because I have a long enough long view to know that nothing ever dies. And people sometimes will say, oh, you know, insert name of genre, mm-hmm. so such and such is dead, such and such is dead. It's never true. The music just keeps on evolving in response to the need of people as they express it on the dance floor. And that is happening right now. And it will continue to happen particularly in cities where you have people who come from a range of backgrounds who are allowed to associate together, allowed to, who can find spaces either to associate together or to associate with the people who, like them, have a need to dance out certain types of life experiences. You're kind of touching there on the boundary breaking that dance can provide and different ethnicities, different classes of people, all sorts of, you know, that, that melting pot on the dance floor is something... Is something super important, isn't mm. it? A kind of mixed place. Obviously, clubs attract certain people, or they're you know in ma- music magazines or style mags. You used to get pictures of people in clubs and queuing for clubs. Tribes of people, kind of street style, kind of fo- photography of, of people going to clubs and stuff like that. And you would maybe think, oh, I could go, I can go in there. I could get in there because I'm a bit like vaguely someone like that. Mm. Um, what about the tribalism? Because there is sort of tribalism in club culture. But it seems pretty benign, mm-hmm. at least in the you know through the book as you describe it. Is that is that a, is that the right call to make? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying the dance floor is like a perfect place or utopian. Sometimes dance floors can be risky, can be dangerous, can be violent. Mm. I, you know, this is also the case. But I think I see the dance floor in its broadest sense. I see the dance floor in its broadest sense. You know, the sort of the village green, the school disco, the nightclub, as a place in which. Um, we can experience dance as a technology of togetherness because there's so much good evidence about when you dance with other people, you like them more. You know, if you get primary school children to move in synchrony with each other, move their arms side Mm -hmm. to side or step side to side, they rate each other more highly afterwards. They like each other better. And so, you know, sometimes people say, oh, like, dancing's not political. That's not what we thought we were doing or find it difficult to articulate why. And actually, I found it difficult to articulate why this stuff is political until I realised we can see its political nature in state response. Okay, by so, how, pe- how people want to close stuff down. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's obviously political because the state will respond in a way which suggests that the state thinks something is happening, mm-hmm. even if we don't. And I was not expecting to write a book in which the police appeared so frequently, but they do. The police appear in almost every chapter. Mm. You know, we're talking just a week after the Baroness Casey reports just come out, talking about, you know, institutional racism, misogyny, corruption within the Met Police. 
And then in a way, what I'm seeing in my book is the fact that state actors, the police in particular, will just appear wherever the dance floor yeah, appears. Yeah. And that also helped me understand the ways in which dancing together will cause a response from the state, which perhaps reflects how powerful it is. It's amazing, actually, how you put it like that, that, that dancing is more potent than voting. It's more potent well, than, than demonstrating. <laughs> but it is a sort of demonstration, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's demonstration a, sort of demonstration. a demonstration of a certain sort of intent mm. and a certain sort of, yeah, a certain sort of belief. And I just wanted to go back to something, I, a note I made when I was right near the beginning of the book about you talking about, I think it was one of the first times you noticed people moving, kind of making it up as they go along. And this is the reggae skank, skanking mm. along to reggae music. And maybe you can tell people what that dance consists of. I think in the book you just go in italics, how did people know? Mm. And I love that because that's always the thing. Sometimes <laughs> you feel like you're on bravura, bravura form on a dance floor or around your kitchen table, whatever, wherever it might be. And sometimes you're stiff and you're not feeling it. But, yeah, that idea of how do people know is such mm. a great thing, making it up as you go along. But, yes. yeah, what, what about the reggae skank? Well, I think making it up as you go along is really important. Improvisation in everyday mm. life is really joyful. And actually, when you step away from the rulemaking or the kind of um, like qualification side of it, like dance shouldn't necessarily be about being good. It's mm. just about being you. We, we somehow conflate being a dancer with being good at dancing. And I'm saying, if you dance, you're a dancer. Yeah, you make it's that, not you about make that being as, good. Yeah, assumption lost mm. in the book. I love that point. And it's such make. a, um, for me, it's such a, it's plain, it's obvious, it's ordinary. But I didn't even know it myself until I spent, you know, three years, 400 pages kind of digging into that. And, and eventually I came to the understanding that it's just really ordinary, gorgeously normal. And that also relates to something like the reggae skank. Partly the music and the sonics of it will instruct your body to move a certain way. You know, a bass line is you're probably going to move differently. Even if you know nothing about dancing, you've just beamed down from Mars. You're going to dance differently to a kind of like very bass heavy reggae record than you would to a samba record because the music is going to move you differently. It tells you how to do it. It tells you how to do it. The instruction is in the sound. But I think there's also something about being in a space with other people where you will absorb something of the movement, not necessarily even like actively copying, but if you or I was landed in a room where everyone's dancing a certain way, we're probably going to try and absorb some of it. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, um, imitate some of it just so that we can join in which is also about communing it's about solidarity it's about togetherness and it's about understanding things through the body as opposed to just through the mind and that's where that kind of euphoria comes in as well when everything seems to be clicking and the music's exactly the dj is playing exactly the next bar that you thought but in a in a good expected way and maybe, I don't know, your eyes caught someone across a room and it's a wonderful kind of, it is a euphoria that I suppose the atmosphere and get being caught up in the moment. And that's what your book is full of those moments. It's, it's, it's got extraordinary erudition, but it's also got a lot of like passion for dance and the dance. And by the way, while we're on that subject, mm. that wasn't a question, I just thought I'd say mm -mm, that. While you. we're on dance and the dance, mm. what are the differences? Because you make a different, you make mm -hmm. it, you've got a little glossary of terms in the front of the book. Yes. I mean, I think that, that feeling that you're describing, I think that's as true in a powerful nightclub as it is in like a leisure centre dance class, as it is at a wedding disco mm. or, you know, like at a works leaving do. All those things are possible in like little ways in all those different environments. But I think the difference between the dance and um, I don't know what the other thing would be like dancing. Yeah. The dance relates is a kind of term which is 
kind of arrived with a kind of Caribbean diaspora and shows another way in which, you know, particularly in the UK, communities of colour built post-war culture, not just the post-war state. And there are many ways in which diaspora communities have um, added things to the lexicon. For example, the word Shabin is kind of Irish via Jamaica. And the dance is also kind of comes through that Caribbean, diasporic, black British, British lineage. Yeah, I love that. I love those kind of that sort of the etymology. Mm. And also it's a word that sounds like something. It sounds a bit like how you would perform it in Mm. a way, right? Mm -hmm. And just finally, I wondered if, Emma, you could give us a bit of a health check on the state of club culture and nightclubs. So many venues were closing before the pandemic. Then that hit people right between the eyes. I wonder if you feel that, as you said, it's dance can be seen as a threat to, to kind of broader society, you know, I mean, and but it's also I just wondered whether you think basically it's respected enough and whether you can give us a bit of a health check on it. Yeah, definitely not respected enough. But I'm hoping that the work I'm doing is the beginning of an instigation of um, more interrogations of this thing and more ways that we can explain how important they are so we can give people who have structural power some architecture of language and argument an understanding to be able to say public space matters because it's easy to talk about nightclubs, but actually this is about communal public space. It's about youth clubs. We've lost 750 in the UK since 2010. Where are the spaces for young people to gather and just feel like they're around adults who like them and respect them, somewhere warm and welcoming, where they can put on some music and like dance if they want to? Where are those places? We need them. Community centres also. Um, even just places where you want to hire somewhere just to do something with your friends. So... All of those things have been cancelled on a massive level since 2010 and that that has a direct effect on everything. Nightclubs also um, have struggled and what, what I would say is I am like relentlessly, trenchantly optimistic. I follow um, this Toni Morrison quote about using optimism in this powerful way and I, I, follow, I follow her lead. What we can do though is find the spaces that are accessible to us and open them up and use them and request them and keep them going by the way we move our feet on those floors. I feel like we can almost dance our way into some buildings and keep them open. Uh, It's not always going to work, but it's what we have, and so we must try. I'm sure our listeners will join you. Hopefully they'll join you on that journey. Um, Mm -hmm. Emma Warren, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Emma Warren and her new book, Dance Your Way Home, is published by Faber and Faber and is out now. Our next stop, Brazil, famed for its colourful nightlife. It's no surprise that the vibrancy of the scene sticks in the mind of one particular Monocle staffer. Even now, he lives far from home. Who else but Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco? This is the rhythm of the night. The sweat dripping from my forehead in a cavernous nightclub in Sao Paulo. That's a recurrent image when I daydream. I am talking about a louca, a club that attracted a truly eclectic crowd, from sex workers to young electro lovers, and the gays too. Wink, wink. The music was so exciting. 
It was a crazy mix at times, especially during their infamous Sunday night called Grind. Pre-Grinder, by the way. From great Eurodance to Marilyn Manson, everything was valid. The club was so iconic that the former mayor of Sao Paulo, Marta Suplicy, campaigned there. She was duly elected, of course. Sao Paulo has an incredible nightlife, probably one of the best in the world. But its clubs can be quite segmented, but not at a loca, which translates roughly as the crazy. My brother introduced me to the club when I was a late teenager. We do share a similar music taste. I am a terrible dancer, and admittedly, at times, I prefer dancing in my own private living room. But at Aloka, something happened to my body, pure sensual ecstasy and a giddy feeling of happiness. I mean, where else could I hear this iconic track by Xuxa, Brazil's kids' TV host? Every week, I close my eyes in my living room and pretend I am there. Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. Thanks, Faye. And next, to New York City and a journey to a certain dance floor there that began way back in the DIY punk and hardcore scene of a small town in Virginia. From makeshift beginnings, Justin Carter then moved to New York and embarked on a career as a DJ. There, he witnessed how the city's nightlife became embattled in the wake of 9-11 as clubs and event spaces began to close. In 2009, along with Eamon Harkin, he began to throw parties titled Mr. Saturday Night and Mr. Sunday. Staying true to the DIY scene, the events built committed following until around 2015 the pair opened nowadays the permanent space is at once both a bar restaurant and of course party haven here's justin on how his early exposure to music nights influences nowadays I certainly can't think of instances where I'm thinking about an experience that I had when I was younger or in the past where I'm trying to take that experience and recreate it. But of course, you know, we're all made up of the experiences that we have. And, you know, I would say there are just some very elemental things about a good night out, whether that's at a punk show or a club night or poetry reading, where you are surrounded by people who are somewhat like-minded and you're receiving something and it's inspiring to you. And, you know, that can manifest in those early hardcore and punk shows that I was going to where it was me and a bunch of other like young teens that were moshing with each other. And that can manifest on the dance floor. And nowadays, now that I'm 42 years old, when you know, it's six o'clock in the morning and Jada Lorraine or Theo Parrish or Aurora Halal or, you know, one of our resident DJs or people who play it nowadays frequently are playing as the sun's coming up and I am looking around and seeing other people experience music in a way that I feel I'm experiencing music and expressing myself and moving my body and seeing other people doing that. And then being able to walk off the dance floor and have a chat with people. Those are the important elements of a night that sharing of 
often nonverbal experience and, and communicating with each other and, um, and, and seeing each other in these spaces repeatedly and building community that way. You mentioned in your first answer some of the kind of more super clubs post 9-11 and, 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 and all the rest of it. I don't know whether we're going to call them super clubs, but you know that some of the exclusive mainstream stuff that was above the water and that was, was sort of saved. And they, those weren't necessarily big places. A lot of them were small places, but, but they were, for me, they seemed really cost prohibitive and they had it, you know, there was a fanciness to them that didn't really feel comfortable to me, that kind of thing. You're not in the, the table service for the kind of like, yeah, the, the kind of American psycho nightclub nightmare, I, I tend to think. I'm, I think you're well clear of that. I wanted to ask you, though, about that idea of exclusivity and inclusivity, because a lot of sometimes we think of underground culture and club culture and music culture as being it's underground and it's quite homemade, but it's also quite exclusive, as in if you need to ask where the venue is, you're kind of not maybe suited to going there. You know, it's, it's very much an in-the-know thing. How do you, where do you sit on that kind of seesaw of being exclusive because you're breaking new, new, new music each time you do a night, but being inclusive to make it a nice, safe space for people? Where That exclusivity, inclusivity um, sort of matrix is kind of part of nightlife, isn't it? It, it is, and it's a really tricky one, I have to say, because to include everyone, theoretically, you are not including everyone because there are certain people who will feel excluded by the presence of heteronormative people. You know, if it's a room that everyone's welcome and it happens to be filled with, you know, straight white people who seem to be from a particular like financial background they're gonna be people who just by the nature of the makeup of the crowd in that room will feel excluded and there's no magic formula for this we have spent a long time talking about how to make nowadays feel more inclusive and make it feel safe for you know quote unquote all kinds of people but, you know, there are challenges there. Uh, it's a really difficult topic. And there's not a like a clean answer of like, this is how it goes. It's like exclusivity for some is inclusivity for others and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. No, I think it's a really amazing thing. I mean, the magic of these, the magic of the dance floor, the magic of, of these nights are, is a great mix. You end up talking to people dance with people the kind of people that you might not meet in your work life in your in your daylight hours basically right i mean that 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 that's that's part of the key of it and I that's one of the promises of it i think yeah is that we can get together people who might not normally interface with each other and learn that you know that old trope that like we're a lot more similar to each other than we thought it's a real service to the community. It's a very undersung service to the community, these sorts of things. But if people are under the misapprehension, it's all about late nights and loud music rather than building kind of, you know, secular churches almost, you know, that that's kind of, the, that's more the business that it seems like you're in. And just maybe finally, Justin, it'd be great to get a sense of where nowadays and your nights fit into the, the Brooklyn scene and the broader New York scene wonder if we could get a bit of a health check on that because we here in London and across the world we know that nights are often imperiled by gentrification by crazy real estate prices etc cetera, etc cetera. 
and clubs and great nights can often be the kind of the shop window for a bright new neighborhood and then they get closed down as soon as that neighborhood arrives in inverted commas i just wondered if you had a if you had a line on that and where you guys sit in in new york oh gentrification which we play a part in for sure is also one of the threats to nightlife and is a pressure that constantly exists for us and for um for all the spaces, DIY and legal. Um, and um, with that said, I feel like we're in a place in New York right now where despite the pressures, things are really thriving. Um, I think we could use some more venues. But right now we are at a time in New York where since I've been here, there are more spaces that are being run by people who actually are connected with and part of the scene. It's a wonderful thing. You know, the people that are running spaces are DJs, promoters, longtime participants in the scene in one way or another. And they're doing it because they're connected to and they care about the scene. And it shows in the nights that are being put on and the, the vibrancy of what we've got happening here. Uh, you know, I mean, unless something monumental changes, New York, we're going to have to deal with the pressures of real estate and, and, you know, the other high costs of living in a city like New York, it's going to be a thing that's here, but young creative people keep coming here and keep infusing this place with a wonderful energy and continue to search for something that's new and fresh and fun that they can feel connected to. There's also a, a technology thing that I think is important to highlight in all of this. Something that I've seen, probably confluence of technology and, and pandemic, where you know before the pandemic came, there was a lot of international touring artists that were driving the scene in New York. And I know that that's been a thing in London as well. I feel like it's a, a big thing all over the world. And when things started to open back up because of all of the travel rules and because of a pent-up energy where people just wanted to go out, it was a lot of local DJs playing. Combine that desire to go out, the fact that there are tons of great local DJs producers with something happening in technology where it feels like there's no kind of media North star or pitchfork doesn't mean what it used to mean before resident advisor doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore. It, everything is very, very fractured in terms of scenes and where people find music and how they find music and I think in combination with the factors that I just mentioned from the pandemic, you've got a situation now where it feels like here in New York that the local scene is really thriving. There's these homegrown bars, clubs, DIY spaces that you know are run by people who are from the scene. And then you've got an audience that doesn't feel like every single weekend they need to go out and hear some big touring DJ. Of course, touring DJs are coming through still. But the scene feels like it's much, much more local and homegrown now than it has for a very long time in New York. 
Now, of course, there would be no dance without music. And for Monocle on Culture's co-producer, Steph Chung-Gu, there is nothing quite like the fear and thrill of being a solo gig-goer. So here she is on her most recent adventure. Going to gigs alone can be very isolating. Daunting, even. You're still in the line, anxiously waiting to go in. Earbuds firmly stuck in your ears. Playlist on full blast. Hoping that no one looks at you with concern as you're on your one seeing your favourite DJ. Because your friends are far away, or they just couldn't be bothered to venture to a South London venue on a Tuesday night. You're in. You make your way past the merch stand and the bar, and you set yourself up at the back of the hall. Not in the middle, because you'll never make it out. Or at the front, because that takes six hours of camping out in the queue just to reach. Some gentle swaying starts as the main attraction appears. Just a little warmer, nothing too difficult. Some head nodding as you try to appear as though you definitely know what this song is and no, you haven't heard it for the first time on the way here. And then the next beat starts. You recognize it clearly. It's the only song you've had on repeat for the past week. It's that one song you are adamant should have been a single, like you love the album, but you're definitely holding on to the opinion that song should have had more attention. The beat travels through the rest of the crowd. The music follows. The swaying turns to shuffling. The shuffling turns to arms raised and the crowd moves forward. You make it to the middle of the floor. I am not the best dancer at all, but the crowd seems to move as one jumping up and down, arms raised, accompanied by deafening screams. As the music brings you in, the fear of isolation floats away. You forget that you're on your own. We're all here for the same thing. There's joy in the togetherness. And on the way home, I scroll back through the shaky videos and my terrible rendition of the set. My eyes are glued to my phone as I bring myself back to that moment again and again and again. Until the next one, of course. Monocle on Culture's very own Steph Chung-Gu there. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Emma Warren and Justin Carter and to Amy Vanderberg, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Steph. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu and Steph also edits the show. And special thanks this week to Emily Sands. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.